Dear friends, uh, thank you to everybody for being with us today and making this forum a great success. Uh, I am particularly privileged uh, to have uh, the opportunity uh, in our forum today to recognize Edmund Paulson for his contribution to Singapore and to global shipping. Uh, if we can close the door, that would be great. So can so Esben indeed has been uh, it's a lifetime in shipping. Uh, I will let uh, an, uh, Andrea Soman Powell introduce him. All I'd like to say is that uh, there are very few people like Esben uh, who have who can claim such tremendous contribution to global shipping and to uh, to the industry, and who have such a long commitment to it. Uh, from my end, I would like to thank him. For, he is the reason that we are here, because as I mentioned at the opening of the event today, he is the one who suggested that we start uh, an annual event in Singapore. So, Esben, thank you for being the grandfather, actually, of this uh, series of events. And if I may kindly ask Andreas to come and take over and um, introduce Esben. Thank you. So I think all of you know Esben, and he doesn't really need a very long introduction because uh, he's such a familiar face to all of us. Um, I've known Esben as a competitor when he was at Torm. Uh, I've known Esben as a industry advocate uh, at SSA, Singapore Shipping Association. Uh, I've known Esben as uh, the sort of front to the regulator during his time at the International Chamber of Shipping. And now I get to enjoy Esben's company as a, and insights as a fellow director uh, of BW Epic Cosan. Uh, so Esben, you have had so many different roles and hats. And apart from the formal roles, I think what we really appreciate about you in the industry is that you have gone about this with this mix of gritty determination and push, which is quite necessary on these industry associations, and at the same time, this charm and friendliness in how you conduct yourself. Uh, some people are only gritty, and some people are only friendly, and you have a very nice blend of the two. Um, I am really pleased. Um, in a moment to be asking you some personal questions, but before that, to present you with this award in recognition of your outstanding contribution to the global shipping industry. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Esben Paulson. So, Esben, uh, having started with this comment about your 
sort of broad roles through the industry over many years. Let me, uh, let me ask a sweeping question to begin with, which is, what are your strongest memories uh, from your shipping career so far? Well, th uh, thank you very much, uh, Andreas, and thank you very much, Nicholas, for this uh, great honor. I, I honestly, looking at the list of people who have had this reward in the past, I feel quite humbled to be on this list of august people. So many, many thanks for that. Um, I think um, I, th I think the my first memory was really uh, going to sea at the age of 17 on a 9,000 dead weight three-decker from the west coast of Canada to Australia via the Pacific Islands um, with a crew of 40. And uh, if you think about that in today's context, where uh, a ship many, many, many times the size of, say, VLCC with a crew of 20, it, it shows you something. That was one uh, great memory. And the other one was uh, I used to be a shipbroker, and my final deal was um, selling two VLCCs from Costco in, in, in China to um, Eastern Mediterranean. And it was on the front page of Lloyd's List, and I remember being very proud of that. So. Uh, You've met a lot of characters in shipping over time. Uh, you've been um, involved in, in many different companies and situations. The fun but inappropriate question would be who were the best and the worst amongst those you met, but I won't embarrass you by uh, putting you on the spot. Um, and maybe I'll ask the broader question, which is um, in what ways do you think the nature of shipping leadership has changed over time, you know, seeing this this span that you have. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, if, if, although we shouldn't pinpoint individuals, since you are here, Andreas, I think your grandfather, the great Sir Y.K. Power, would be very, very happy to see what has happened to what was worldwide shipping, today's BW Group, under your leadership. He was certainly a, a tremendous character and a huge presence uh, in our industry. And there are still, thankfully, characters around. But I think what's changed in, is that in the, let's say, from about the mid-late 90s, when uh, shipping companies started listing on uh, stock exchanges such as New York, it brought a different type of personality into the industry. Um, and with, be it hedge funds or private equity, family offices, and so on, the, the way that shipping has financed itself has, of course, changed from the old model of bank with a mortgage and, uh, and you know, just uh, traditional bank f financing. But I, I hope and I believe that the characters of the past and, and of the present will still be around. I, I, uh, I remember seeing an interview with um, John Fredrickson where he was asked about, so do you read market reports and so on? And he said, yeah, I, I, I glance at them, but you know, to me it's this and this. <laughs> and, and I think that's, um, you know, that, that actually still remains the case today, that sentiment and gut feel is a big part of the decision-making. And, um, well, long may that last, in my view. And people talk about, just as a follow-on to that, people talk about sort of um, increasing professionalization, um, partly in response to increasing regulation, because this kind of instinctual approach to shipping becomes harder when you have all the compliance and regulations and so on. Would you, would you say that there is an element of that also, or that instinct really is at the heart of it? I, I think for the, for the decision, the, the big decision, whether to order, whether to buy, whether to sell, those are still uh, largely in, instinctive. Mm -hmm. um, 
but, but there's no doubt that the sort of the analysis and the formality of the decision making, particularly with the involvement, as I said before, of, of you know, private equity and so on, that, that brings a different financial discipline, for want of a better way of putting it, to, to the decision making yeah. process. Um, I'm going to ask you in a moment a, a question about the sort of more challenging or difficult moments in your career, but maybe before I do that, to zoom out a bit on, on more of a business-oriented uh, question, which is your assessment of the maritime institutions we have today. Um, are they fit for purpose? What do you think works well? And what do you think could be improved? Well, uh, Andreas, as I argue in my book, which is for sale outside, by the way, even signed, so I hope everybody here will buy one because the proceeds goes to the mission of seafarers, which is my my very favorite charity and a very useful charity, in my opinion. Um, I, 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 sorry, I've lost my... Yeah, just in terms of the institutions, are, the, they, sorry, the, yeah. are they working? No, I mean, yeah. institution-wise, as, as I say in my book, uh, I, I think IMO uh, is really not really fit for purpose in its current form or format, in the sense that it takes way, way, way too long to get uh, to get agreement on new regulation, and several panelists this morning have referred to the need and the urgency of regulation and, and, and the danger of regional regulation coming through, which I fear is very much a fact, because unless the IMO gets its act together and does what it is meant to do, uh, I, uh, clearly we will have regional regulation with no one in this room, as was said earlier, once, because we all want a level playing field. So I think the IMO uh, needs really uh, to, be, to be looked at, but of course it's part of institutions generally. I mean, the, uh, the UN itself ha has its drawbacks uh, for sure. As for, as for association works, I, I think associations, there are too many, as I also argue in my book, there is room for merger to make what I would describe as an IATA of shipping, a one huge organization that taking account into you know, the differences between segments of our industry can still speak as a, as a strong voice for our industry. The problem is the ship owners, generally speaking, do not really know what these associations do, and therefore they don't really want to fund them. And like all humans, they want something for nothing. So, so associations do well with minimal budgets, but they could do so much better, and I think there is really scope and room for, a, um, for consolidation of associations. And how do you feel about the emerging institutions or associations? Because you know, there's a lot of focus on IMO as the kind of mega institution that can um, go further because of global regulation. But then you have these new institutions like the decarbonization centers and Global Maritime Forum, um, obviously ones focused on particular segments like Poseidon principles on, on banks or insurance and so on. How do you feel about these institutions? Are they um, better suited because they're smaller and more agile, or is it difficult because they are not bringing the whole world with them? Well, I, I, I go back to, I think you and I were on a panel together. The very first, what was Danish Maritime Forum, has become Global Maritime Forum. And I remember saying at the time, I think it was in 2016, I remember saying the mere fact that something like this can, can be created would tend to suggest that the existing associations are not doing a very good job. I mean, to be very blunt about it. However, I think subsequently it's, it's shown that 
an association like ICS is very nitty-gritty and hands-on at IMO virtually daily. The Global Maritime Forum is more of an ideas, uh, you know, a collection of, of owners with, with ideas and, and setting some, some, uh, some targets and some goals of, of, what, of, of what to do. And in fact, ICS, for example, on, on the seafarer side, we've, we cooperated with, with the Global Maritime Forum. And I think, I think as long as there is collaboration and, and not too much duplication amongst these associations, then it's fine if there is a need for one. It, it you know it, it's okay, but I mean ideally there should be there should be more collaboration. There should be more consolidation uh, amongst them, right? To avoid duplication. Uh, to get a bit more personal, um, you know, you were chairman of of ICS, and you were sort of in the front line on topics with IMO and so on. Uh, what were some challenging, difficult moments. Can you tell us some inside stories about what it was like? Well, I, I think the uh, a high moment was in uh, October 2021 when the industry decided to move from 50% aspiration in 2050 to 100%. I think that was really a, a, an amazing thing and was it was a result of really a lot of um, <laughs> A lot of arm twisting, cajoling. Uh, I hope not bullying, but in any event, you know there was a lot of persuasion that took place, and all of a sudden it, it came together. And and uh, and uh, at COP26 in Glasgow, it was sort of an announced formally, and, and it set the scene for I think what was a, a really very very good uh, conference. That very sadly I missed due to COVID, by the way. But nonetheless, it was it was a it was a, a great moment. Um, a, a low point was in I, I visited 31, 32 of our members throughout my six-year term uh, because I felt it was always important for to understand what individual member associations, what we could do for them, and 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 I particularly visited the Union of Greek Shipowners, being our biggest member and most important member, and I I uh, I had a uh, let's say a difference of opinion with uh, Mr. Theodore Venyamas who served as president for no less than 12 years and he was quite a i would almost say <laughs> fearsome personality he was certainly a strong personality and uh, and he and i differed on on an issue which thankfully i can't remember what it actually was but we we um we we had a a, a robust exchange um but that very same evening i sat next to him at a dinner in honor of the european ship owners association uh, exa and uh, there were there were no hard feelings. <laughs> Good. What what about um, just to press one one step further on this one? You know, people describe um, regulation setting as a sort of sausage factory. It's it's a bit messy, and you don't really want to know what goes into it, as long as uh, what comes out is is good. Um, but what works when you're in these sessions? Um, you know, debating a particular. Uh, you know, take the tax as an example, the carbon levy as an example, or, or any of the regulations. What works to move things forwards? Because people are sort of saying it's too slow and it's frustrating. What, in your experience, on the ground gets gets things to a successful conclusion? Well, I, I must confess that as chairman, I very rarely actually went to IMO um, sessions, and the few times I did. 
I was very happy that other people could undertake this work because it is, uh, if you are impatient, um, it's not a good place to be because everything is a discussion and a little bit of uh, behind the scenes and off the record discussion. And, and I would say that the various shipping associations, certainly um, ICS, who has been a, a, an observer there since 1960 or 61, um, in the original industry body to do so, are very, very good at, at finding out where the, you know, the, difficult, the difficulties are from various countries' point of view. And they try to sort of form a consensus of key countries that are then influential with other countries. And then slowly but surely, it all falls into line. And I mean, this, this, um, uh, this uh, fund that, that, we are, that ICS is trying to promote at, at the moment, uh, you know, it's, it, it's called the fund and reward scheme. And to me, it's a classic example of a common sense industry type initiative, which at first sight, everybody thinks that that's a great idea because it makes total sense. But then when you get into the nitty-gritty, some countries are a bit worried about uh, that, the, that the quantum will be too, too high. Some countries think it's too low. And then when you get a major nation like the US being anti, it becomes very, very difficult. And uh, I'm hoping really hoping that this fund and reward scheme will work out and will be, will be agreed at, at um, MEPC in June. Uh, but honestly, based on, on past history, I'm not overly optimistic, but I'm, I'm well, I'm optimistic and hopeful, but, um, but um, uh, let's see. And specifically, what do you think is the right level in terms of dollars per ton, bearing in mind that some people will always think it's too high and others yeah, will always yeah. think it's too low. What, what do you think no, well, works? I, I, yeah. I asked the secretary at this and they said, we don't have a view on this <laughs> <laughs> because it's, it's um, if we say something, then immediately some countries are going to start objecting and, and so on. So we, we, don't, uh, we don't have a view on it. But you, you, you subscribe to the belief that you know, if you start low, you can bring it up over time. Yeah, I mean, At least that, you give it, people time exactly. to adjust, right? I mean, by, by starting low, um, I, I think our calculations show that, that by 2030, um, I think the figure is, uh, uh, I haven't got it here, but yeah. No, but anyway, it, 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 it can be a reduction of about um, 16 million tons. Uh, of, of CO2 even by 2030, if, if even if you start low, and that of course will give the fund quite a sizable uh, amount of money. Right. So, right. Uh, so it's um, yeah. I, the, to me, as I say, this is really a common sense, and apparently the European Union uh, is for it, provided that it's complemented by a global greenhouse gas standard, and that it, that is in itself is a good thing because if they are for it. Um, that, that, that is a big help. Mm. The big question, as I say, is the US. Another kind of more personal or feeling question, and linking it back to the last panel, you know, on, on where, where, do we, where do we go, what does the world look like, or shipping look like in 20 years? You know, you, you hear these schools of thought, one of which is optimistic and saying on uh, climate change, we can do this, we have pathways, you know, humans do amazing things. And another school of thought, which is like, get real guys, this is 60,000 ships that you're talking about trying to change to fuels that don't even exist today. Um, which school of thought are you? What is your feeling on our 
kind of prospects over the next 10, 20 years? Well, I mean, as we heard in the previous panel, it, it's difficult to argue uh, the, the facts that, that status was so eloquently put. But I must admit, I, I'm, I'm on the other school because, first of all, we, as we always say, to be in shipping, you have to be an optimist, and that's, <laughs> that's been said many a time. But, but I, think, I think, you know, my, my gut feeling is that we should never underestimate the ingenuity of mankind. And, and I think that what has already happened, even in these five years, I think if you look back five years, you would not think that we would have got as far as we have. It's true, it's true that it's too slow, but the acceleration and the momentum that's underway now is, is, is tremendous. Yeah. I remember at, at, the, at the last Global Maritime Forum here in Singapore, I remember you specifically saying, you know, this train is leaving the station. Are, are people on it or not? And, and I think you, you persuaded a lot of people. And, and th there is a momentum, as I say, that, that one should not underestimate. Hmm. I, and here in Singapore in particular, we, there's just so much going on. Global center being one, and and, right. uh, and so on. So I, I'm I'm very very optimistic, even though I, I fully take the points uh, made that the, the the scope and size of this challenge is absolutely enormous. Yeah. I mean, just to add a thought on that, you know, my own view is that um, a lot of human progress has, in fact, all human progress in the past has been incremental, and it's really a question of time scales because. Everything that we're doing today, you know, incredibly large vessels, um, you know, sp spaceships and, and whatever you choose to, to care to mention started with very small steps with rowing boats and then sails and then small engines and what have you. Um, so if you give it enough time, actually incremental progress takes you a very, very long way. But then the other observation, which more and more people are talking about these days, is we have this exponential power behind us now, um, which is artificial intelligence and, and technological progress, um, machines that can learn by themselves and can, can improve themselves without human intervention. And at one level, of course, this is very scary, and a lot of people are debating, you know, does this go beyond our ability to control it? At another level, actually, if you can say to a machine, you know, figure out for me how we can do ammonia safely or how we can, you know, improve our supply chains in X, Y, Z. Um, and they can then, on a much more accelerated basis, help us to find solutions. I think that can be quite disruptive. So incremental will get us there, but over a long period, or disruptive through these new technologies that we have. Um, let me turn to another... Uh, question and, and uh, start to sort of uh, wrap up here, but um, maritime centers. Um, what do you think that maritime centers like Singapore need to be thinking about for future success? And I, I'm asking this, you know, future success for themselves, for the center, but also for the industry. What, what sort of things do centers need to be doing? I think the, what Singapore has done, everybody can see. I mean, when I started in shipping, which admittedly is 52 years ago, uh, Singapore was a backwater, quite frankly. And today is number one, rated number one uh, shipping center in the world. But this was based on a strategy that was, that was set out very clearly and built brick by brick over many, many years. It didn't happen overnight, and maritime centers don't happen overnight. 
I think the, the danger now uh, for a place like Singapore is on employment passes. I, I know this sounds very nitty-gritty, but I really believe that in the early 2000s, when Singapore was very open to this, this was a big trigger in helping us get where we are because shipping is global and, and whatever talent may or may not be available in Singapore, it should be possible to bring it in. And I think if you look at a place, just take one example, a place like Vancouver, they've tried for years with huge advertising campaigns to bring people on shore. One of the reasons it failed was because, okay, I want to open an office here, I want to bring some people in. No, 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 you can't do that. Copenhagen, which is a major shipping center, could be an international shipping center if, again, they change their policies on, on, on non-European nationals working there. But it's, it's, it's kind of a sensitive subject, and, and it's one where it, it concerns me a little bit in, from a Singapore perspective. Is if you look at Dubai, you know, zero tax, no problem with employment passes, and, um, and uh, uh, you know, a quite a good time zone in, in terms of European business, um, we have to be careful from a Singapore perspective of, of Dubai. I'm looking at you, Kenneth. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing, but, but it's just you know it's a point that we've talked about b before. But certainly, so certainly, ease of access of people in a global, you know, it, it's good for people of different nationalities to work in different centres because shipping is so global. So th this is, I think, a, a point that's often overlooked. The rest of it, you know, the tax and the cost of living and all these things, the cost of doing business, these are all the, the normal considerations. Right. No, I think it's a really yeah. Okay. Uh, he, he says he wants to ask me something, but this is a session for me to ask you questions. <laughs> anyway, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. But I think it's a good perspective, which is that, uh, you know, centers, um, well, countries or centers or whatever, can't rest on their laurels. First of all, one needs to keep doing the things that brought past success, such as being open and, and welcoming. Um, and then also one needs to be a little bit paranoid and keeping an eye on what the competition is doing and how fast they're running. And right now, you know, one does hear a lot about Dubai and uh, amongst others. Um, so I think it's, uh, and it's, it's actually a mentality that has served Singapore so well in the past, which is to be a little bit, um, paranoid is a strong word, but a little bit sort of nervous about the competition and sort of always trying to stay uh, stay on its on its toes um, so I did I did have one more for you but you wanted to ask me a question as well yeah I think I think uh, with more than enough about me I mean I think uh, and everybody in this room knows Andreas uh, Soman powers and really an exceptional person and, and a very admirable and, and um, yeah amazing personality who also wrote the foreword in my book by the way so that's another reason to buy it. <laughs> But, but Andreas, you are, uh, PW Group is operating in most segments, LNG, LPG, uh, product tankers, um, really across the board. You, you, uh, you were instrumental in the formation of Global Center for Maritime Decarbonization, and you have, you have often expressed views on the decarbonization agenda. So I would just love to hear, and I know that everybody here would love to hear, from your perspective, BW groups taking a sort of a, a view of your whole group, where do you see it and wh where are you at? So, um, not something I, I um, was thinking about before this, but I, I, um, I think what really was a tipping point for us as a group and maybe also for myself was um, 
when we took the perspective that we shouldn't try to do everything centrally and in a very controlled manner. And for many years, in fact, my grandfather started the business on a highly centralized model. Um, you know, he built the largest fleet in the world by the 19, late 1970s, and it was all done with him at the center of things um, and with a sort of big team of very loyal and dedicated individuals who would just kind of execute on instructions. Um, and I think that was the right model for the time. Apart from anything else, he was running this, you know, a lot of ships on long bareboat charters, Shikuma Zen system, and it was about <clears throat> sort of accounting and, and operations, and it wasn't navigating a wildly changing global landscape. So centralization worked really well. And I think for a long time, even myself, we thought, well, if this has been working for us in the past, we should continue to run a fairly centralized system. And it was after the acquisition of Bergeson in, in Norway in 2002 that we started to think this is too much to manage centrally. Um, you know, we had a guy who was fixing 20-year LNG charters and chartering product tankers in the spot market at the same time. And these are two totally different, you know, mentalities that you need. Um, and the volume grew and the complexity grew. And then we sort of said, okay, let's start setting up companies which are focused on individual segments. And at first it felt a little bit scary because it was like, well, we're gonna need 10 CEOs now and 10 CFOs and 10 whatever, and this is gonna be very costly. But what we found is by letting go that they all kind of moved faster, became very focused on their segments. And I guess the summary of what I'm saying, and it's a little bit true also when one is establishing either new companies or new segments is, you know, concentrate on two things, which is finding the right people, really good people, and setting good values, which is the sort of backdrop to decisions. And the rest kind of let a hundred flowers bloom, let a thousand flowers bloom, if you will, <clears throat> and let people go. I mean, I, I get so much pleasure from reading in the newspapers about initiatives that are happening, you know, one company developing an AI tools, another one setting up a um, collaboration with Microsoft, another one is uh, doing ammonia. And it's the first I've heard of it. I mean, I'm reading about it, and that, that might sound a bit scary, uh, you know, that I don't know what's happening in the organization, but actually these innovations have to bubble up and have space to develop without everything being highly controlled and filtered. So that's, that's my perspective. In an increasingly complex world, you know, let people go and uh, experiment and, and discover. Very, very interesting. And on top of that, I, read, I just read this morning that along with Maersk, BW Group is the uh, top employer in Singapore. Have you seen this report? Yes, well, we, there was recently a, a Singapore survey and we came out. Actually, you know, we were 145th, so it's not so amazing. But within shipping <laughs> and transport, we came out pretty well. I think we were next to UPS and FedEx and Maersk and others. Um, I mean, I, I, I think employee engagement is so important if you believe in the S in ESG. 
actually social, you can talk about social elements being diversity and equity and inclusion and so on, but it all comes to this sense of engagement and belonging. If people feel that this is a good place for them, then you're probably doing the right thing. So that, that's really important for us um, as a component of ESG. Um, we are very pleased you know, to see the level of engagement. I mean, we're scoring in the 90s on our surveys you know, we're frequently getting responses, 95, 98%, you know, um, engagement scores, belief in the values and so on. Uh, but we still have some work to do. And, uh, you know, actually our neighbors, uh, Google is in the same complex, they're number one. So we need All to right. do some, yeah. we have some work, yeah, sure. we have some work to do. Uh, so my last question, for, oh, time's up. Um, well, let me, let me ask you one quick last question, which is why do you love sailing so much? He's a great sailor. Esben, why, why do you, what do you love about sailing? I, 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 just, I love to be on the, that's why I went into shipping, I just love to be on the water. And uh, sailing is, uh, is really the love of my life. And I've, in fact, I was watching a video last night of the 1979 Fastnet race, wherein 16 people lost their lives. I was in that race on a Hong Kong boat uh, called Vanguard, and um, it brought back a lot of memories. But uh, so that was... Uh, not something one would like to repeat, but no, I, I just love being on the, on the water, and I know you, I know you do as well. And um, but but uh, we, our time is up, and thank you so much, Andreas, for everything. And uh, as Chairman Mao would have said to Wang Guofeng, with you in charge, my heart is at ease. <laughs> you are very kind. Uh, congratulations, Esben, on the uh, on the award, and thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Very thank much, you. Andreas, thank you. <laughs>